0: Välkomna till Kulturhuset Stadsteatern. Jag heter Ingemar Fast och jag är konstnärlig ledare för litteraturscenen i detta stora allkonsthus vid Sägels i vår huvudstad Stockholm. Nu ska ni få möta författaren Hania Janaghera och hon samtalar med Harald Hultqvist. Låt tankeutbytet ta sin början.
1: Welcome to paradise, or hell as it were. We'll see what we will talk about most. Um, I start right off from the bat with uh, just explaining that the book, if you haven't read it yet or haven't got your copy yet, then do it afterwards. But uh, the book is in three uh, books. So it's actually one book in three books, just like the Bible or Dante's uh, Divine Comedy or something like that. It's divided into books. So there are three books in this, uh, and they are uh, of course, as in the Bible uh, or by Dante, foreshadowing. There are parallels. They are mirroring of, of different subjects in the different parts. So they are uh, very connected, but they are still kind of separate. And they are separate, not least chronologically, because one place in 1893, one place in 1993, and one place in 2093. So you could uh, from that uh, deduct that one of them is kind of a science fiction something in the future. And one is kind of an historical novel but, uh, or historical book. But uh, what I was thinking when I was reading these three and thinking of how they were interconnected. Uh, I was wondering how did you work to, to like interconnect them, to, to to put these three, knit these three different fabrics together to one book, one, one oeuvre. And uh, and maybe that could give you some uh, chance to say a bit about what these books are about. Uh,
2: well, is this on? Can people hear? Okay, it is on. First, of all, I want to say um, I'm so happy to be back on the stage and I'm happy to be back in Sweden, you know. Americans mostly think of Swedes for two things. Serial killers and not wearing masks. And um, (laughs) it's great to see that one of those is really true. Um, (laughs) You know, but I'm really thrilled to be here. and And I'm so grateful to you for all of your support. When my last book was published, the readers here were so supportive and so enthusiastic. And the great joy of being back in person is getting to actually see and to meet readers. And um, that's something that we haven't been able to do for a very long time. So I'm very grateful that you gave up a beautiful summer night to come sit in, in the gloom. But which must be kind of nice, actually. Um, so the, the book, is, as Harold was saying, is, is divided into three sections. And um, each section offers a different version of America. The, the first part is set in, in 1893 in um, a sort of torque New York City. Uh, New York is part of what's a coalition of what's called the free states, a breakaway group of states that have a split from the Union after the War of Rebellion, also known as the Civil War, or um, actually before it, and um, in which certain liberties um, are, are, are commonplace. There is um, same-sex marriage. Um, women are educated and able to work in a way that they weren't actually able to in 1893. Um, and certain things are the same. They um, are not fond of black people, and they want Native Americans to get the hell off of their land. The second part of the book is set in 1993 in, in This is Our America, again in New York in the same house. Uh, and um, a plague is ravaging New York, which is never named, but is clearly AIDS. And in the second part of that, of that book, of that section, um, it is about a young man in Hawaii who is trying to create um, a pre-lapsarian version of the Hawaiian kingdom. And the third part of the book, set in 2093, is once again in New York, once again in the same house, once again with all of the same character names, though not the same characters. And it is told in two voices, uh, one of a scientist in the 2040s through 2090s. Who is uh, becoming a, a bureaucrat with the state um, and a, a public health servant, and his granddaughter, uh, who is living in the aftermath of certain decisions that her grandfather, um, her grandfather made, and, and this is an age of rolling pandemics where one is worse than the next, uh, and she is 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 trying to figure out with. Um, with kind of her, her limited vision and capacity, both as a citizen and, and, and intellectually and emotionally, how she can navigate this world. So that's all. <laughs> you know, but I, I suppose that, um, you know. Thank you all for coming. <laughs> Thank you for coming, <laughs> good night. Uh, you know, I, I, people always ask about the third part of the book, which I'm sure we'll talk about, and, and its emphasis on pandemics and, and, you know, when I started writing that book, it was 2017, or when I started researching, it was 2017. But to me, what ended up being predictive about the book was the conversations that we as a country are having at large about American history. You know, how are we remembering it? How did we record it? Who gets written into it? Or have we, have, we, have we imagined and remembered America the correct way? And I suppose, if anything, the book came from, you know, which I started really writing in earnest shortly after uh, President Trump's uh, Muslim ban. I started thinking specifically about the idea of of what a paradise was. And, you know, a paradise was traditionally a walled garden, and a walled garden is meant to keep people out, not let people in. And so, had the central premise, the central mythology of America been wrong all along? Um, And and that really was uh, was the germ, and, and the book grew out of that.
1: But when doing this, when, when starting out, if, you, if, you, if it grows out of an idea of, of American history, then one could assume that you would write something that actually is American history. But you did exactly the opposite. You wrote what is not American history, a counterfactual thing about how America could have been or parts of America could have been uh, if things would have turned out differently.
2: You know, I think for a young country like America, and I think this is true of all young countries, you always have the sense, or I always have the sense, that, you know, if something had gone 10 degrees to the right or 10 degrees to the left, we would be in another universe altogether. Our history feels very fungible somehow. It feels, um, it, it, it doesn't feel engraved in stone the way that, that you might find in a very, very old country. Uh, And so, I think that because America is founded on the premise of of reinvention, there is this idea that nothing is quite settled. That the way that we collectively see things and remember things in a country, and this is one of the central debates we're having in the country right now, is not quite agreed upon and might not quite be true. After I finished the book, I sent it to um, Michael Cunningham, who, you know, wrote The Hours, and he said something really interesting. He said that he thought fiction writers had far too much fealty to history. And he meant, you know, and and that I hadn't thought about it that way, but it's true. You know, I mean, science fiction writers, fantasy writers, genre writers are very bold um, and very unapologetic about taking history and twisting it and rewriting it and, you know, tearing it apart for whatever ends they need. But for whatever reason, I think, you know, serious literary writers tend to do a lot of research. We tend to want to get the facts correct. We tend to want to reflect history as it was lived. And I suppose one of the questions you have to start asking then is whose history and why are we assuming the history is true?
1: So this is kind of a suggestion to what, what, could, have, what could have been or something like that. Yeah, And then we have the future too. We have the pandemics and everything, and uh, and that is of course something that... Uh, did you start to write it before the actual uh, new pandemic was?
2: Yes, so I started researching it in 2017. I, I, by that point, knew what the book was going to be about. I, I knew um, roughly... I, I didn't have the structure completely worked out, but I had it almost worked out in, in retrospect. And so, I asked a family friend of ours who works for the National Institutes of Health uh, to introduce me to some people at Rockefeller University, which, you know, I don't know if any of you have been to New York, but most New Yorkers don't know this place exists either. It's um, a a biological sciences postgraduate university on the Upper East Side that was largely founded by Rockefeller and, and helped along by Howard Hughes. So, kind of, you know the original dirty money um, sort of, you know, <laughs> postgraduate facility. And I met with um, some postgraduates and I met with a virologist. Um, this terrifying French guy who seemed, who said that there was definitely going to be another big pandemic. He seemed very excited about this. And uh, he said it was because America had invested too much research, money into cancer research and not enough into the flu. And he had predicted it would be a flu-based disease. Uh, and. So, you know, at the time, um, it felt, you know, sort of exciting but remote, but also not outside the realm of possibility. I also talked to um, a, a doctor at something called the EcoHealth Alliance, which nowadays we all know what zoonoses are. Back then, perhaps not so much. And he was telling me about all of these diseases that we never hear about, in which, you know, uh, something originates in a bat, bats are a the worst apparently, and then the back goes to the civet cat and the civet cat goes to livestock and the livestock comes to us. So, but, but the point was that there are many, many things that the general public never hears about, mostly because they peter out, um, and also because no one was interested at the time. But it, it reminds me, and I love talking to people in the sciences or in any sort of specialized field and, and realizing what we don't know, uh, what educated people or curious people don't know and how much of science is a negotiate public science is a negotiation between being transparent with citizens and also trying to protect us from what they know and that's something of course that that the doctor in the third part of the book tries to, to grapples with um, frequently
1: yeah there's a lot to unpack in that it's a freedom of information and it's a, yeah. it's it's uh, that's one thing internet is eventually shut down in the book because it's too dangerous to let people have any kind of information. It's, yeah. um, but when did w- the actual disease, I, I must ask you, when 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 the COVID pandemic hit uh, hit the world, you were already on uh, writing the book. But how did the COVID? affect the writing, and I mean for you personally, because it's affected everyone's work, just as you didn't, you couldn't work at the same place, or like, you know, it's, it, yeah. it was different for everyone. So how did you cope with it?
2: So we were sent home from the office on March 13th, 2020, which is, I think, pretty much when everyone was sent home, and...
1: Uh, sorry, maybe we should say that the office, all authors don't have an office, because you have a day job, too. Yes, I have
2: a, I have a day job, so I'm... I'm the editor of, of a magazine at the New York Times. So, I, we got sent home on March 13th, 2020, which most people did except for you guys. And um, <laughs> I, um, I, by that point, I was about halfway through the third part of the book. And, you know, it sounds, it, it, it sounds uh, strange to say, and I think people don't believe this, but, and, and it's, it's funny for me to even say this, but at no point did I ever think, you know, this is eerie that the book is somehow imitating life. It did not feel like a similar situation at all. I mean, first of all, the the diseases in the book are much worse, uh, and they are living in an age in which they're quite, they're pretty world weary. Uh, uh, You know, they understand the cycle of how a pandemic moves through the world, and their job, as one of the the scientists in the book says, is not to stop pandemics, it's to contain them. And um, so, you know, As a citizen in the world, I felt, you know, as confused and as scared and I think as as helpless as everyone else. But in the world of my office, in the world of this book, uh, of my home office and in the world of this book, you know, you're the king and you're the god and you control everything. And I think it probably gave me a sense of great reassurance and confidence in a way that I perhaps wouldn't have had. And on a practical level, of course, it it gave me more time to write. You know, I, I was working from home, but when you're working from home, you save an hour in commuting time, you're not going to the theater, you're not going out to, you know, to hear writers speak, you're not going out to dinner. It was suddenly many found hours, and I think many creative people felt guilty or ashamed or or impatient or restless because they couldn't get something started, a creative project started. And I think it was a very difficult period to start something. But if you were deep into something, if you had a world that was well established and you could escape into it, it was a wonderful period for that.
1: So, that's why the third part is twice as long as the other ones.
2: (laughs) I always knew it would be the longest. Um, And, you know, it was sort of an homage, as much of this book is, to an old-fashioned, by which I mean a 19th-century novel. You know, in in its reliance on epistolary forms, in its reliance on certain sort of structural conventions. And often in in, in books like this, you see that there is one dominating story, and the other two are sort of... um, you know are are important, but in a way are are, are meant to be are meant to to build to the crescendo of the third.
1: Did you do you have it when you when you when you yourself now are diving back to the nineteenth century novel? Do you have any like authors that have inspired you that you like more directly to this? Uh, or wh- how does your reading of novels look?
2: What does well, it look like? You know, I mean, the, the first part of the book obviously is based on Washington Square by Henry James and. Do people here read Henry James? Has anyone read him? No. <laughs> They're saying yes.
1: Okay. I'm but happy But only for one you. person
2: raised his hand that I saw. As, oh, a, two.
1: as a book two. dealer, I can say I have never sold a Henry James in my life. So oh, they must buy them really. somewhere else.
2: The Brits don't read him either. Um, <laughs> they really don't. And Americans don't read him either, not anymore. But when I, I'm old enough so that I read him, you know, when I was growing up. And Washington Square uh, is, it's, it's by far his most accessible book. It's his shortest. It was a novella, and it's a very simple story. It's the story of a young woman named Catherine Sloper, who's described as plain, and her father, Dr. Sloper. And Catherine Sloper is wooed by a young man who her father is pretty sure is a scoundrel or a grifter. And he says to her, you know, you if you run off with him, if you marry him, I'll cut you off. She's an heiress. and. The thing I found, and you know, later in life, James dis- disowned this book. He, he, it was his least favorite, and he liked to try to pretend it didn't exist. It, it is not as psychologically astute or complicated in either language or, or, or emotion as his other works as The Golden Bowl or The Portrait of the Lady or The Ambassadors, but what I really loved about this book the first time I read it is that it was, In an age of great sentimentality and even mawkishness in 19th century novels, it dared to suggest that a parent's love for a child was conditional. You know, and this was an era in novels, not all novels, but many novels, in which you see parental love as something that is um, almost godlike. And here was a father who was telling his child, essentially, I don't love you. I only love you if you, if you, follow, my, if you follow my orders. And in that way, it seemed very modern. Uh, and so the first book is, is a retelling of that book. But, you know, like, like every, you know, American, um, I, I read Dickens, obviously, Wharton, James. I don't know that the 19th century novel I don't know that I would have consciously said it, it it made a big impression on me, but it clearly did. Because I think my novels are very 19th century in a lot of ways. I think they're very narrative driven, um, which is a hallmark of a 19th century novel. I think they're very operatic, which is another hallmark of a 19th century novel. I think that they um, take a lot of, strands of both small-scale lives and big events and try to weave them together in, in, in different ways and that's a hallmark of the 19th century novel. So I suppose it made more of an impression on me than I thought.
1: It's kind of how you learn the craft. Eh? Um, I, uh, one thing which uh, is very present not only in the first part but I think it's overall one of the main themes is what you mentioned here about the family. Because we meet all kinds of families in this book. There are families, uh, of course. There are gay families, and there are families that consist of. of there are siblings living as families. There is a grandfather who is raising his his grandchild, and there are of course single moms and single dads, and so on and so on. So there are very many different kinds, and and the children could be biological or non-biological, or or sometimes you don't even know that. Um, but the thing that somehow uh, makes all these constellations families is the care for the for the child or for the other ones in the family or the non-care, as it were, sometimes. That is what makes them work or not work. Uh, and when you said godlike, it was exactly what I was thinking because it's somehow as if this... Family care is is like sweeping through the book. In absence of religion, this is what the substitute for religion. And that's also something I think you can see in society today. That's the thing, family is kind of the religion... Are you with me here, or are you...? (laughs) (laughs) You can just say yes, and I can take the next question.
2: Well, I mean, I am not that interested I, I've always, I mean, listen. the the, I, the fundamental unchangingness of family that you know exists in every society in every culture on earth is fascinating to me. I mean, it's a human invention that has, I, I guess, I don't know if it's never been improved upon or it's never been challenged. Now it's been, but it's, but that's really only been after thousands of years of civilization um, that that a different way to ha- have a family is being acknowledged. I've never been interested in, 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 in a special sort of loyalty based on blood or genetics. Um, it, to me, the, as, as you said, one of the things that I hope the book does is actually challenge what it means to be a parent. You know, that can a parent be something as simple as an older person taking care of a younger person? And the three characters in the book, the three names, Edward, David, and Charles repeat in every book, but they're different characters. But they always form the same triangle that we all have in our lives. There's someone who needs care, there's someone who's offering that care, and there's someone who's trying to disrupt that relationship. And that triangle um, is is also, I think, a very human um, way of, of how we experience other people. Um, it, it, is, it is, we have the tribe of our family and there's an interloper. And either that interloper becomes accepted or that interloper disrupts something. Uh, and, and so, the book is, it, it, you know, despite I think it's, its attempts to write about science and write about history, is fundamentally a very, very simple story about human emotions, how humans interact with one another even in very dire circumstances and even in circumstances that seem foreign to us. In circumstances that seem foreign to us, the family remains the same. Um, You could go to any culture in any place and you know take away the you know the details, the costumes, the food, the housing, the religion, and the fundamentals of how people interact with one another would remain the same.
1: But uh, when you say that uh, this is like what the book is about, of course it is what the book is about, but it's, since it's a rather rich book, uh, uh, it's also about how society affects this. I mean, it, I, I think you. it's wonderful to see how, how clearly uh, things that we believe are personal, like whom you love, what you eat, where you live, and, and your morals, how they are directed by society and how they would be different if society was different uh,
2: yes but I think the you know but I think even if society is not encouraging of certain kinds of relationships or certain kinds of love that love always exists and those relationships always exist too
1: yeah of course they, they exist but they exist in a very different form in the in the societies we, the three different societies we see in the book. Where we have one it, it, m- it, it, more
2: or less encouraging uh, right. uh, same-sex marriages. Well, in the second part of the book, you know, which is actually based on on, on the '90s in, in in America, the relationships between those men are not validated, they're not encouraged, they're not tolerated in many cases, but they still go on with the same kind of richness and complexity um, and depth, even without. You know societal recognition. So I guess I, I understand what you're saying, and, and I think I, I, I suppose I'm also trying to say that while a society can enable different kinds of relationships and different kinds of families, those families and, and you know exist whether the society encourages them or allows them or not.
1: Mm. Um, jumping now from New York, taking the great leap that you also do, do in your book to Hawaii, mm. uh, it's interesting because. Uh, not many people uh, in Sweden are experts in the history of, of the Hawaii Islands and, and what has happened there, why they are a part, form a part of the United States and so on. And here you are. I suppose we can learn something from this book because here you are not counterfactual. You are actually telling the story more or less a, as it is. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, uh, and that must be on purpose. Is this, is this an educational purpose or did you just didn't find anything to, to screw, to like uh, change? Well, you know,
2: uh, <clears throat> one of the things, I always thought of the book as, in a, in a way it's a very personal um, uh, journal of my particular American experience. So if you grew up in Hawaii as I did, you will see certain details in the book um, that other people might not. You know, for example, the book begins in 1893 which was the year that the last queen of Hawaii was overthrown um, and the country, the country was, the kingdom was annexed in 1898. The, na- the last names of all the characters, Bishop, Bingham, Griffith, and, and, and Cook are the names of the of prominent mich- American missionary families who came to um, the kingdom in the 19th century and in many cases married into the royal family. The camps that um, that the sick are sent to in the third part of the book are the names of the original Japanese internment camps where um, 120,000 Japanese and American citizens were sent during World War II after the bombing of Pearl Harbor. So in that way, it, it was also, I suppose, a kind of response to the American history I was taught, you know, I think, Relatively, I don't know how much American children these days are taught about um, the country's own colonial adventures and imperialist adventures in, in the Pacific. You know, if you grew up on the west coast, if you grew up in Hawaii, you, you, you knew about them. But I'm not sure that, that people really understand America's sort of brief rapacious period as a colonizer. And you know, every country is either, has either been or is a colonizer or the colonized. And America has been both, Uh, except as children we hear mostly about being the colonized and not the colonizer. So, Hawaii felt to me um, like something hiding in plain sight in America. You know, I mean, I'm always interested in the stories that, you know, I always tell people that the stories we don't know are just the stories we haven't heard yet. The story that seems impossible is just the story we haven't heard. And so I think one of the vibrant and to some people scary things about America is that that it's so fractaled and depending on who you are and how you came there and why you came there and if you got to choose whether you came there, you are having a very different American experience than somebody else. Now, of course, this is true of countries around the world, but I think it's richer and more complicated in America that has, you know, again, been founded on the central mythology of being welcoming to all.
1: The most, uh, well not the most, but one of the most uh, uh, like interesting uh, miniature stories hidden around the pages in the book, I think is in the second book about Edward. Uh, the Edward. There is an Edward in the first and the third book as well, of course. But in the second book, uh, Edward is a Hawaiian who is inspired by the hardliners of the civil rights movement like the black panthers or something and is trying something like that on hawaii or something could you just tell just briefly tell about the story what they do in the book and i also want to know is there any kind of was was it that kind of a movement on hawaii in those days
2: so edward and uh, and vika who is kavika's is the hawaiianization of david uh, and uh, and Vika is his, is his friend and the one who's narrating the second part of the book, are, are trying to recreate a lost Hawaiian state. And I have a great deal of sympathy for people whose cultures were lost or taken from them or diminished, and who in some way try to recreate a country or a culture based on memory and myth. And it happens all the time, uh, and, and it's impossible to do. But the pull and to try to reimagine, to try to resurrect some place that has been lost, some place that you feel has been your birthright um, and, and has been taken from you by war or by conquerors, um, I, I think is irresistible. It, it's something hardwired into us as, 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 as citizens, as, as people rather. The Hawaiians so of the modern Hawaiian civil rights movement, which really began in the 60s and 70s, and like almost all movements, whether it was the gay rights movement or the feminist movement, was founded by you know the Black civil rights movement. I mean that that was the start of all modern uh, you know civil rights movements in America, and what they wanted was. You know, they wanted a few things, depending on who you were. you wanted the restoration of the king, you wanted um, a state within a state, or you wanted a nation within a nation and that um, that spirit is still very much alive in Hawaii today because my parents grew up in the in the sixties and seventies in in Hawaii. You know, it's something that they were exposed to and now they're, you know, they're sort of classic left of center baby boomers in their 70s, but they strongly believe that the Hawaiians should have a nation within a nation. It is not a fringe position, I think, among uh, among a certain demographic of people who live in Hawaii. And this, this, uh, this great sorrow um, that you come to realize when you live in Hawaii, that you know you were living on 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 a land that um, that has has been taken and 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 in many ways the people who have a birthright to that land have been diminished. I mean, this is a story we see all over the world. Um, is 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 one that you have to try to um, make some sort of understanding with for the rest of your life. Unlike many other sort of equivalent places. Hawaiian activists have brought back the Hawaiian language, which you see in some, in some form in this book. And it is because of them that you can hear Hawaiian, which was almost a vanished language, you know, a few generations ago, that you can hear it spoken in the street, you can see it when you get money out of an ATM machine, when they have to give the language and, and offer, you know, the choice to do it in Hawaiian. It is, it is an official language, and that is a triumph of that movement
1: that that is fantastic, and there are some words and bits and pieces phrases and a song in in hawaiian in 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 the in the book uh I think that the two loan words from English that are in that song is like enemy and paper mm. the uh, it's It's rather telling that those two are are loan words from the english i think
3: yeah.
1: but in the book uh, and what I wanted you to maybe uh, say something about is if, if we have this civil rights movement, or what we could call it in Hawaii, in, in, or, or, or movement of indigenous people, but what they do in the book is they go out on the countryside and start to live in tents and be hunter-gatherers, and it's a total failure. Mm. So that's not very inspiring.
2: No, it's not. I mean, as I said, it's almost impossible, I think, to resurrect a dream. but. But the human impulse to keep trying, I think, is 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 equally impossible to resist.
1: Okay, so yeah, so that could be taken as an image of of that. Um, speaking of Hawaii, there is another thing here in the book that I that I I recognized it right away. But then it it was even more specific in 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 the last part, the thing of fabric and textile and everything. Uh, It's it's present throughout the book. There's wool and there's that and that fabrics and textiles. Uh, I didn't know when I started out reading it that you are actually a fashion uh, editor and writer. So I didn't know of your own interest for of course for fabrics and so on. But um, uh, when you think about fabrics and so on, does it have anything to do with text for you? Does it have anything to do with with your with so to speak? Texture of, of Oh, that's of, interesting.
2: Think? No, but it's, it, that's a good theory, and I might take it. I mean, it, it's more that, you know, I, I'm, I'm, I'm interested in the materiality of history. So, you know, America was fun, has always been a, some, a country that makes things, and the great money in early America was made by manufacturers, by people who produce things. And, of course, in the third part of the book, these these fabrics, these weavings, become, a, a, you know, a symbol of conquest, become all that remains of, of a lost civilization, again, Hawaii. Um, and so they become collectibles. And it, it was it was really about as we lose culture and we lose cultures, all we have left sometimes are the objects. And those objects begin to take on a sort of totemic importance that can be, I I, I think, you know, Irritating to the people um, who 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 made them,
1: Mm. but those people are for the most part gone, aren't they? Um, Those people are, pardon? Those people are for the most part gone. I mean, yes, yes, yes.
2: um, But but this is a conversation, obviously, that that a lot of American museums are having, and I'm many museums throughout Europe as well. I mean, who gets to hold on to whose priceless objects? You know, if if you can, you know everything within a museum is, well, not everything, but many things have been looted or stolen or, or have a, you know, kind of a dubious provenance. And at what point do we get to call ourselves sort of protectors of culture? And at what point does it just simply seem like thievery?
1: Yeah, I, I love that in the book, there is, there is a, uh, uh, a conglomerate of billionaires who are looting, Everything that is worth something, uh, like collectors' items. And they say, they're they're calling this something like the Alexandria Society or something. Yeah, the Alexandria Project. Yeah, the Alexandria Project. And they say, we will put this in good hands in museums, but actually they just keep it for themselves, as collectors do. Yeah. Um, and this debate is living in Sweden somehow, but we are not as colonial as Germany or or right. France or England. But we do have or the Netherlands, the, or or ne- really, the Netherlands, yeah. Be- yeah. Belgium, and so on. But but we we have this debate in Sweden too because we have uh, Sámi uh, uh, things that are yes. in our museums that are yeah. being restituted or not. Right. So it's. Uh, um, another thing I was thinking about in this book is uh, it's... Uh, I, I don't know actually what what is paradise in this book because it always ends before the paradise. But the first part is at least somehow manageable. The second part is a bit eerie. The third part is horrible. It's mm. right <laughs> up horrible. No, it's it's really hell. Uh, that people are living in. And we even see it develop into hell through this, how you narrate it, uh, letters coming decade by decade, so we see the development into this. But people adapt. They adapt to this as well. And the people living in 2093, they don't know of anything else. Or even if if they do, they kind of don't want to know, and they just forget, and they adapt. Are there any limits to human adaption? Will we live like that in that fascist, uh, very, very hot, uh, uh, plague-ridden world of, in, in 70 years?
2: No, and I, I think humans can adapt to almost anything. And the other thing I'm always struck by, I mean, like, like many people, I think, I'm fascinated um, by reports from North Korea, And what I'm really interested in are not the extremities, the, you know, the the, the cruelty and the deprivation, but the sort of small human stories that you hear about. um, About, you know, about how, you know, Louis Vuitton has found its way into stores there. About how people trade things illegally to watch a DVD. And you realize that even in a very prohibitive society, people are still falling in love. People still want to be loved people are still trying to make their lives more beautiful, that those are fundamental human desires or qualities that can't be stamped out. No matter how hard, you you know, um, a a regime tries, that that there are just certain human desires that that can't be eliminated. And so in the third part of the book, when Charlie, um, one of the narrators, is talking about her life, which which seems sort of unimaginably bleak to us, she doesn't really, She has accepted that she's not going to have water when she needs it, that she can't take a shower when she needs it, that, she, um, that she's not going to have certain foods when she needs them, but what she really wants is for her husband to love her. What she really wants, she, there's, there's a scene in which she um, notices a husband and a wife saying goodbye to one another, to each other in the morning, and the husband, the, the woman is pregnant. <clears throat> and the husband puts his hand on her stomach and they look at each other. And, and even in this bleak of a society, what she is really looking for is something that transcends, uh, I, I think, governments and transcends laws and, and, and she cannot have it. And what makes her world cruel to her is not any sort of state-sanctioned deprivation. What makes the world cruel to her is that she's alone.
1: Yeah, that's loneliness. Um okay. Getting out of my own loneliness. Let's talk about Dante. Um uh reading the book in three parts. Uh, uh I and wha- the first part ending in in uh, in uh, in, uh, in uh, to towards paradise, to paradise. So, uh and the second part ending the same way. I, I just flipped through to look it up. Do they all end like that? And they do. And then, in the middle of the book, there is the name... Actually, the name of the middle part of the book is The Dark Forest in Hawaiian. My Hawaiian is very bad, so I won't try to pronounce it, but it's, it's The Dark Forest. And Dante starts out in The Dark Forest. So you must have had him as some kind of resonance behind you when you wrote this. Or, no?
2: Probably, but I, you know, I, I loved, you know, I, the experience, you know, how some, there are some books where the experience of reading the book is more transformative than what you remember of the book itself. But that book begins, that canto begins so beautifully, and it is something a, of, of an homage. So, the second book in this, in, in this novel is called Lipo van Helé. Um, and Hawaiian is such a beautiful language it 's an oral language it 's meant to be spoken or sung and it's it, it's it, the the actual translation is the dark forest but you know and I, I I was talking to a Hawaiian scholar about this, and he said the mana, the essence of the phrase would be. The forest of heaven, the forests of paradise. So you would say so. There's the top layer of the language, and there's the sub meaning of the language. And you know, like many, like many like oh, Hawaiian is not the only language that has these sort of um, kind of bi levels. But I, I, thought it was such a beautiful, um, and I, you, you can always wonder if, and Dante did mean the same thing. You know, the forest dark was was literal, but it was also metaphorical, uh, and and and. The, Lipovavlje, I hope, works the same way.
1: Do you think about these different levels of language when you write in English? I mean,
2: English, as any translator or, or, and all of you know, because you know, all of you speak English. English is a much more forgiving language. You know, I'm always struck when I when I talk to translators, the translators of my books how um, much English forgives. You can be very vague in English. There are no gendered words in English. You can can get away with a lot. Um, It allows for a certain kind of flexibility and a certain sort of um, unresolvedness that many other languages do not. Um, So you kind of don't have to think about the layers of language in English because English itself provides it. There's, there's, you know, a great deal of, I think, um, sort of slipping and sliding of tenses. You can elide um, meaning very easily in English. You don't have to be in a strange way as deliberate because it, the English itself, the language itself, allows you to be vague if you want to. So it's a very generous language that way which is why when it gets translated into French or into Spanish or into German, and you have to start making hard decisions about what you really mean, it's it's startling to realize what you've been getting away with this whole time, you know? <laughs> and and you kind of, you know, the translator will say, well, did you mean this or did you mean that? Mm-hmm. And you'll say, well, I wanted to kind of remain in between. And they'll say, you know, if they're a good translator, they'll say, well, let me try to figure out a workaround. But but often there is no workaround. English just forgives too much.
1: Yeah, you, you don't have to be that specific. No, it, not at when all. When it comes to gender neutrality is, of course, one of the questions in this book. Yes. Uh, w- where you can just write, when someone is working with something something you you don't have to say if she's a, or he or she is a female or a male yes. laboratory assistant
2: because yes. that yes. it's yes. the same word but and I think in, sp- in the Spanish translation they used a gender neutral language for Charlie mm-hmm. and I asked you know I don't want to suggest that she doesn't identify as as female, but I do want to suggest that her femaleness, is somewhat incidental to her. And they said that that, that that's what the gender neutrality would would oh, suggest. I, yeah, yeah. But, of course, in English you don't have to think about those things at all. And part of, there was this book that was published, a novel that was published many years ago by um, Marcel Thoreau, uh, Paul Thoreau's son, that I really loved called, I think it was called Far North. And, the entire novel is about this this man who's living on his own in the the harsh wilderness of of, um, of North Dakota and um, and and is, is is lives a very lonesome life uh, and is trying to survive. And then, towards maybe five fifth five six of the way of way through the book, you realize that this man is a woman. Um, and of course, I, I've always thought, how did they translate that? Because it would be... It's not that the, the, the protagonist doesn't identify as a woman, she just never has to say it. Uh, and there's a lot in English you don't ever have to say.
1: Okay, let's be quiet. Um,
2: <laughs> uh, actually,
1: time flies. Uh, and I want you to ask some questions as well, if you want to. So you can start thinking about those questions when I put just one more for you uh and it's uh, i think we have not talked uh enough at all about about the everything that goes on in this book uh, because but just retelling the the narrative i think it's it it's not we don't have to do that but we can say that each of these parts that end with this in paradise uh, to paradise uh, is some kind of it's a person that wants to reach something, some kind of utopia. And it could be geographically moving away from where they are. Or, or it actually, it is in all cases geographically as well. But, but it could be a personal utopia or like a place that is the utopia. But uh, all three... Are, but it just ends with this. And then I thought I was on my way to paradise. And then it ends. So we will never know if they actually reach their utopia or not. We will never know how it goes. Right. So my question is, are you planning a three-part sequel to this
2: (laughs) (laughs) You know, well, uh, I I think... Well, I actually have a serious answer for this. The first is that, you know, historically, America has always thought of paradise in the West. So you went west, and you went west, and you went west, and you hit California, and then if you wanted to go west farther still, you ended up in Hawaii or, you know, points elsewhere. The other defining, I think, one of the defining qualities of Americans is that there is this oppressive, and I think cruel, idea that paradise is within, and that and paradise is happiness, and if you can't, reach happiness, and happiness is a destination. And if you can't reach it, it's because you haven't worked hard enough, or tried hard enough, or believed hard enough, or prayed hard enough, and it's a very punishing way, I think, of running a society, because it suggests that, there, that happiness is of kind of ecstasy, and it's the end goal of life, and everyone can achieve it, and if you haven't, you failed. Uh, and I and I think that it's um, it's it's motivated many people, and but it's also meant the proliferation of cults and, relig- you know, religiosity, and scams, and a sort of and you know and a kind of desperation, uh, and I, I and I wonder if I don't think any other country in the modern age is obsessed with the idea of accumulating happiness as a thing. Uh, as, that the state, is some, the state of happiness is somehow achievable through human will and effort. And I, I think it's a very sad way to run a society.
1: Almost as a duty to... you're you obliged to be... Yes,
2: and, and, that, and that we are, I think, very unsympathetic towards people who are unhappy.
1: Mm-hmm. So we will never know if these people ever became happy because we are not supposed to know, because that's not the
2: point. Right, yeah.
1: right. Cool. Right. (laughs) Uh, Okay, so uh, anyone out there who wants to say something, uh, please keep it a question. Uh, And uh, as you've heard from me, no question is too stupid, so just throw them out there.
3: Hi. Uh, Hi. So when you were speaking just now, um, it reminded me of something that I really enjoyed uh, in the novel, which was that the characters are very, very passive. They often don't make decisions. Things happen to them. Yeah. Um, and so when, when you were speaking about the, the project of recreating Paradise in, in Hawaii, and that that project ends in utter failure, that, um, but a lot of the projects, whether it be to get married or to to leave this this sort of fascist society. It's not being done by the, the main character or the protagonist. So I just wondered, um, because I also felt while I was reading the book, it's an incredible page turner. Like I, I kept really wanting to go forward and there was this really interesting dichotomy between like nobody's really making choices or doing things <laughs> and yet I keep wanting to move forward with that. So I, I'm just wondering how you maybe how you accomplished that, or, or how, you, how you set about writing something like that.
2: Well, thank you very much, and thank you for reading it. I, I definitely do think they're very passive people, and I'm, I'm, I'm glad that you, you picked up on that. I mean, I think the sort of passivity, the sort of radical passivity, or the stubborn passivity of those characters, I mean, if you read A Little Life, Jude is equally passive. You know, life sort of happens to them. And they're sort of buoyed along by, by, by circumstance and, and by context. And I think that, you know, for as much as I, I think America really celebrates people who do things, I, I think one of the, you know, inevitable parts about living in a country that's so obsessed with accomplishment and, and ambition is that there are people who um, simply feel overwhelmed by, by the busyness around them. And so while these characters I think can be infuriating in their, their, their inability to act, I think that they also, I hope that they also feel sympathetic for the same reason. That that society around them is moving so fast, is changing so fast, that they don't quite know how to do anything but let themselves be sort of ferried along. And for all three of these, the main characters in all three of these books, there is this sense that they are somehow apart. And it's not because they're necessarily um, impoverished or not privileged or, you know, In the first book, you know, David is is actually very rich. But they feel somehow that they fundamentally never got into the rhythm of the way the country or the society or their friends or their community was moving. And so it seems easier and sort of a form of, I wouldn't say resistance, but a form of of stubbornness to do nothing at all. You know, I mean, I've always admired, you know those you know those big English bulldogs, and sometimes you see them on the street in New York, and someone's trying to pull them along, and they just center their weight, and they don't move at all. And there is a kind of um, in, in when you are being led by someone all the time, sometimes the only thing you can do is sit still. But thank uh, you. That's
1: nice. Someone else wanting to say something? Okay. Um,
0: So, uh, how to phrase this, but uh, I was thinking uh, about uh, the linking between the persons with uh, the same names across the the different books. So, uh, when I was uh, done with uh, reading the first book and started reading the second, I started picking up on these themes like Charles being the more passive, safe, domestic person, Edward being the more a uh, dubious character, etc. And I was thinking, because uh, in the first book, you, there's a big theme, you don't know how it ends. Is the intel about Edward's uh, hoax true? Is it mm. false? Uh, no one knows what happens. And I couldn't stop myself from starting to learn about the character Edward in the first book from what I know about Edward in the second book. Mm. Uh, to to start to link these characters and get to know the the 100 year younger Edward from the others. Uh, Is there something to this? Uh, Did you think about the links between the character archetypes?
2: No, they are separate characters. What remains is 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 the kinds of relationships they have with, with with one another. I mean the name Edward is now ruined for everyone because Edward turns out to not be great in two thirds of the of the books. But 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 there are certain things that do repeat from book to book. There's a certain line, I don't know how it translated in, in Sweden but in Swedish, but there's the line, America's a country with a sin in it, a sin at its heart there's this line, you know, America's not for everyone, it is not for you and, or for me. There are, there's the house on Bethune Street with its crumbling step. I wanted it to feel, you know, as, a, as I think all histories do, something that that, you, that you're living in a constant sense of deja vu, that, that, that everything, even, even if unrelated, feels like the echo of something or someone you've known. And so I was really hoping for that effect but not so much that you know Edward in Book Two would be some sort of consequence of Edward in Book One. Thank you. Thanks.
1: Okay. Do we have? There is one gentleman down here. If we don't have any else, anyone else, but we have to send him back down. throw it. No, I'm kidding. How do we do this? Oh, oh. Yes. yes. Through it's cooperation. Yes.
2: It's a successful society. Yeah.
1: Fantastic. Yeah. <laughs> and non-contagious. Yes. Does it? Is it on? Yes. Hi,
0: firstly, I just want to say that um, I've never been so engaged when I'm reading your books there. You said it yourself that sometimes it's about uh, you remember when you read a book and not so much the substance of it. For me, it's been both. I both remember and definitely remember the substance. What I wanted to ask you was I read in an interview with you that you said you write mostly for yourself. Um, And um, so then what inspires you? What do you want to read? And then how does that reflect in your own writing?
2: That's a really good question. Um, What do I want to read? You know, when I was much younger, I think I had, I was much more Catholic in my tastes. I had much more patience, and I read much more. And this is why I realized I could never be a good book editor. A really good book editor, Um, is somebody who not only reads a lot and appreciates a lot, but goes into each book wanting to be excited or dazzled. These days, I become much more impatient. And I find myself, I I find the biggest insult anyone can give a book is, I finished it and it was okay. You know, I I think that I really want books that are extremes in some way. And I don't mean that and now you're going to ask me to give an example and I don't have any, but, but, I, but, but something that, I like books that feel a little bit wrong. You know, I like to, as, as, as a reader, I like, I like as a writer to be able to read a book and understand how technically complicated the book was to put together. And I like as a reader to read a book and, and understand how true it is. That, that there is a quality, I think, about a good novel that it should be able to express something that you never thought to articulate to yourself, that it asks a question you didn't know how to ask, that it says something, it unlocks something, it gives you language to express something or it, it, to, to say something um, th- that you hadn't known existed, a feeling, a sensation, a suspicion, um, a theory, which then you can steal and like repeat to other people. But, but increasingly, that's what I want books to be. I want them to be wise. Thank you. Thank you. I Thank you so much. I didn't
1: took up this applause because it's over. I took it up because it was a good answer. Okay, it's not over. <laughs> Um, no, it was fantastic. I really loved the, uh, that answer. Uh, is there anyone more who wants to put out a question? Because otherwise, I have a hard one for you. But you cannot stand up before before you answered okay. it. Mm. And it's actually kind of a uh, uh, has to do with what you just said, but you don't get to answer as uh, many words. Uh, David in Book One explains to his pupils in uh, his his uh, teacher, uh, arts teacher, and he says the most important expression of artistic skill is to be able to depict the human body. Okay, so you have shown very many skills in this book, but you must single out one. Which singular skill is the most important for an author?
2: For an author or for myself?
1: Oh, you are an author, aren't you?
2: <laughs> I, think I'm, I'm, I think I'm very good at structure and I'm very good at pace.
1: Good. Structure and pace. That's it. That's what you need. <laughs> uh, I think that's it. Uh, do you but wish to say something dimming. more?
2: No, I mean, I, I just want to say it. it's been such a joy to be here. And, um, and Swedish readers really have always been here for me, and I'm so, so grateful. Um, and and it, it's been a real joy being here with you and being on stage with you too, Harold. So thank you.
1: We are so happy that you wrote this book. Write many, many more. And thank you so much for coming. And thank you, audience, for thank coming. Thank you. Putting good questions, being very polite. Thank you. Clapping, Thank laughing. You.